You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. This is a reading of a collection of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled Mystery of the Universe, The Human Being, Image of Creation, formerly known as Man, Hieroglyph of the Universe. This is Lecture 7. The previous lectures described a path which, if followed in the right way, leads to an overall view of the universe and its organization. As you have seen, this path compels a continuous search for the harmony existing between the processes taking place within us and the processes observed in the wider universe. Tomorrow and the day after, I shall have to treat our subject in such a way that the friends who have come to attend the general meeting may be able to receive something from the two lectures at which they are present. Tomorrow I shall go over again some of what has been said in order then to connect with it something fresh. If you read my title, uh, Occult Science and Outline, also known as An Outline of Esoteric Science, you will see that its description of the evolution of the known universe continually strives to relate that evolution to the evolution of man himself. Beginning with the Saturn period, which was followed by the Sun and Moon periods preceding the Earth period, you will remember that the Saturn period was characterized by the laying of the first foundations of the human senses. And along this line of thought the book proceeds. Everywhere universal conditions are considered in a way that at the same time also describes the evolution of man. In short, the human being is not considered as standing in the universe in the way modern science sees him the external universe on the one hand and man on the other as two entities that do not rightly belong to each other. Here, on the contrary, the two are regarded as closely interconnected and the evolution of both is followed together. This conception must of necessity be applied also to the present attributes, forces and motions of the universe. We cannot consider first the universe abstractly in its purely spatial aspect, as is done in the Galileo-Copernican system, and then man as existing beside it, we must allow both to merge into one another in our study. This is only possible when we have acquired an understanding of man himself. I have already shown you how little modern science is able to explain man truly. What does science do, for instance, in that sphere where it seems greatest, judging by modern methods of thought. It states in a grand manner that man has evolved physically from other lower forms. It then shows how, during the embryonic period, the human being passes again rapidly through these forms in recapitulation. This means that man is regarded as the highest of the animals. 
Science contemplates the animal kingdom and then creates man as a composite of all that is found there. In other words, it examines everything non-human and then sees how it becomes man. Natural science does not feel called upon to study man as man and, consequently, any real understanding of his nature is out of the question. In fact, people who claim to be experts in this domain of nature nowadays really ought to examine Goethe's investigations in natural science, particularly his theory of colors. He uses a very different method of investigation from the one we are used to today. At the very outset, he mentions subjective and physiological colors and actual phenomena, what the living human eye EYE, experiences in connection with its environment are then carefully investigated. It is shown, for example, how these experiences or impressions do not merely last as long as the eye is exposed to its surroundings, but that an after-effect remains. You all know a very simple phenomenon connected with this. You gaze at a red surface and then quickly turning to a white surface, you will see a green after-color. This shows that the eye is, in a certain sense, still under the influence of the original impression. There is no need here to examine why the second color, seen should be green. We will only keep in mind the more general fact that the eye responds to its experience with a slowly fading after-effect. We have to do here with an experience on the periphery of the human body, for the eye is on the periphery. When we contemplate this experience, we find that for a certain limited time the eye retains the after-effect of the impression. After that, the experience ceases, and the eye can then expose itself to new impressions without interference from the last one. Let us now consider quite objectively a phenomenon connected not with any single localized organ of the human organism, but with the whole human being. Provided our observations are unprejudiced, we cannot fail to recognize that this experience, which the whole human being has, is related to the experience localized in the eye. We expose ourselves to an impression, to an experience with our whole being. In so doing, we absorb this experience just as the eye absorbs the impression of the color to which it is exposed. And we find that after the lapse of months or even years, the after-effect comes forth in the form of a thought picture. The whole phenomenon is somewhat different, but you will not fail to recognize the relation of this memory picture to that after-picture of an experience which the eye retains for a short limited time. This is the kind of question that we must properly ask. For we can only gain some knowledge of the world when we learn to ask questions in the right way. Let us, therefore, ask ourselves, what is the connection between these two phenomena, between the after-picture of the eye and the memory-picture that rises up within us in relation to a certain experience. As soon as we put our question in this form and require a definite answer, 
we realize that the whole method of modern scientific thought completely fails to supply the answer, and it fails because of its ignorance of one great fact, the fact of the universal significance of metamorphosis. This metamorphosis is something that is not completed in us within the limits of one life, but only plays itself out in consecutive lives on earth. You will remember that in order to gain a true insight into the nature of man, we distinguish three parts, head, rhythmic system, and limbs. We may, for the present purpose, consider the last two as one. And we then have the head organization on the one hand and all that makes up the remaining parts on the other. As we try to comprehend this head organization, we must be able to understand how it is related to man's whole evolution. The head is a later metamorphosis, a transformation of the rest of man, considered in terms of its forces. Were you to imagine yourself without your head, and of course also without whatever is present in the rest of the organism but really belongs to the head, you would in the first place think of the remaining portion of your organism in terms of the substances composing it. But here we are not concerned with substance. It is the interrelation of the forces at work in this substance which undergoes a complete transformation in the period between death and a new birth and becomes our head organization in the next incarnation. In other words, what you now include in the lower part, the rhythmic system and the limbs, is an earlier stage of what is going to metamorphose into head organization. But if you wish to understand how this metamorphosis occurs, excuse me, proceeds, you will have to consider the following. Take any one organ, liver or kidney, of what we can call your lower man, and compare it with your head organization. You will at once become aware of a fundamental, essential difference. Namely, that all the activities of the lower parts of the body, as distinct from the upper or head, are directed inward, as instanced by the kidneys, whose whole activity is exercised within the body's interior. The activity of the kidneys is an activity of secretion. In comparing this organ with a characteristic organ of the head, the eye, for instance, you find the construction of the latter to be the exact opposite. It is directed outward, and the results of the changing impressions are transmitted inward to the power of reason, to the head. In any particular organ of the head, you have the polar opposite of an organ belonging to the other part of the body. We might depict this fact diagrammatically. There's a picture. Take the drawing on the left as the first metamorphosis and the drawing on the right as the second. Then you will have to imagine the first as the first life and the second as the second life. And between the two is the life between death and a new birth. We have first an inner organ which is directed inward but through the transformation taking place between death and rebirth, 
the whole position and direction of this organ is entirely reversed. It now opens outward, so that an organ which develops its activity inwardly in one incarnation develops it outwardly in the succeeding life. You can now imagine that something has happened between the two incarnations that may be compared with putting on a glove, taking it off, and turning it inside out. Upon wearing the glove again, the surface, which was previously turned inward, comes outside, and vice versa. Thus it must be noted that this metamorphosis does not merely transform the organs, but turns them inside out, inner becomes outer. We can now say that the organs of the body, taking body as the opposite to head, have been transformed so that one or other of our abdominal organs, for instance, has now become our eyes in this incarnation. It has been reversed in its active forces, has become an eye, and has attained the capacity to generate after-effects from the external impressions it receives. Now, where does this capacity originate? Let us consider the eye and its task in life in an unbiased way. These after-effects only prove to us that the eye is a living thing. They prove that the eye retains impressions for a little while. And why? I will use as a simile something simpler. Suppose you touch silk. Your organ of touch retains an after-effect of the smoothness of silk. If later on again you touch silk, you recognize it from the first impression you retained. It is the same with the eye. The after-effect is somehow connected with recognition. The inner activity which produces this after-effect has something to do with recognition. But an outer object we recognize remains outside us. If I see any of you now and tomorrow meet you again and recognize you, you will be physically present before me. Now compare this with the inner organ of which the eye is a transformation in respect to its activity and forces. In this organ must reside something which in a certain sense corresponds to the eye's capacity for retaining pictures of impressions, something akin to the inner life of the eye, but it must be directed inward. And this must also have some connection with recognition. But to recognize an experience means to remember it. So, when we look for the fundamental metamorphosis of the eye's activity in a former life, we must inquire into the activity of that organ which induces memory. It is impossible to explain these things in simple language, such as people often prefer nowadays, but we can direct our thoughts along a certain line which if perused excuse me which if pursued will lead us to see that all our sense organs which are directed outward correspond to inner organs and that these latter are also the organs of memory with the eye we see what occurs as an impression from the outer world while with those organs within the human body which correspond to what the eye metamorphosed from 
We remember the pictures transmitted through the eye. We hear sound with the ear, and with the inner organ corresponding to the ear, we remember that sound. Thus the whole of us becomes, as we direct or open our organs inward, an organ of memory. We encounter the outer world, taking it into ourselves in the form of impressions. Materialistic science claims that we receive an impression through the eye which is transmitted to the optic nerve and then apparently ceases. As regards the process of cognition, the whole remaining organism is thought to be as important as the fifth wheel of a wagon. But this is far from the truth. All that we perceive passes over into the rest of the organism. The nerves have no direct relation with memory. On the contrary, the entire human body, the whole of us, becomes a memory instrument, only specialized in terms of particular organs. Materialism is experiencing a tragic paradox. It fails to comprehend matter because it sticks fast to its abstractions. It becomes more and more abstract. The spiritual is more and more filtered out. Therefore it cannot penetrate to the essence of material phenomena, for it does not recognize the spiritual within the material. For instance, materialism does not realize that our internal organs have very much more to do with our memory than has the brain, which merely prepares the idea or images so that they can be absorbed by the other organs of the whole body. In this connection, our science perpetuates a one-sided asceticism, unwilling to understand the spirituality of the material world and desiring to overcome it. Our science has learned sufficient asceticism to deprive itself of the capacity for understanding the world when it claims that the eyes and other sense organs receive their various impressions, pass them on to the nervous system, and then to something else which remains undefined. But this undefined something is the entire remaining organism. Here it is that memories originate through the recollective response of the organs. This was very well known in the days when no spurious asceticism burdened human perception. Thus we find that the ancients, when speaking of hypochondria, for example, did not speak of it in the same way as people generally do nowadays. And even the psychoanalyst, when he maintains that hypochondria is merely mental, is something rooted in the soul. No. Hypochondria means a hardening of the abdominal and lower region. The ancients knew well enough that this hardening of the abdominal system results in what we call hypochondria, and the English language which gives evidence of a less advanced stage than other European tongues still contains a remnant of memory of this correspondence between the material and the spiritual. I can at the moment only remind you of one instance of this. In English, depression is called spleen. The word is the same as the name of the physical organ that has very much to do with this depression. For this condition of soul cannot be explained by examining the nervous system. Instead, it is rooted in the spleen. 
We might find a good many such correspondences, for the genius of language has preserved much. And even if words have been somewhat transformed as they came to be applied to the soul, yet they reflect the real insight man once possessed in ancient times and that stood him in good stead. To repeat, as entire human being you observe the surrounding world, and this world reacts upon your organs, which adapt themselves to these experiences according to their nature. In a medical school, when anatomy is being studied, the liver is just called liver, be it the liver of a man of fifty or of twenty-five, of a musician or of one who understands as much of music as a cow does of Sunday after feasting on grass for a week. It is simply liver. The fact is that a great difference exists between the liver of a musician and that of a non-musician, for the liver is very closely connected with all that may be summed up as the musical conceptions that live and resound in man. It is of no use to look at the liver with the eye of an ascetic and see it as an inferior organ. For that apparently humble organ is the seat of all that lives in and expresses itself through the beautiful sequence of melody. It is closely concerned, for example, with the act of listening to a symphony. We must clearly understand that the liver also possesses an etheric organ. It is this latter which in the first place has to do with music. But the outer physical liver is, in a certain sense, an externalization of the etheric liver, and its form is like the form of the latter. In this way, you see, you prepare your organs, and if it depended entirely upon yourself, the instruments of your senses would, in the next incarnation, be a replica of the experiences you had accrued in the world in the present incarnation but this is true only to a certain extent. For in the interval between death and a new birth, beings of the higher hierarchies come to our aid, and they do not always decide that we should continue to carry the destiny of injuries produced upon our organs by lack of knowledge or of self-control. We receive help between death and rebirth, and therefore this part of our constitution is not dependent upon ourselves alone. From all this you will see that a relation really exists between the head organization and the rest of the body with its organs. The body becomes head, and we lose the head at death insofar as its formative forces are concerned. Therefore it is so essentially bony in its structure and is preserved longer on earth than the rest of the organism which fact is only the outer sign that it plays no further part in our following reincarnation and in all that we have to experience between death and rebirth. Ancient atavistic wisdom perceived these things plainly, and especially when that great relation between man and macrocosm was investigated, which we find expressed in ancient descriptions of the movements of heavenly bodies. The genius of language has also preserved a great deal here. As I pointed out yesterday, physically we adhere internally to the day cycle. We demand breakfast every day and not only on Sunday. Breakfast 
Dinner and supper are required every day, and not only breakfast on Sunday, dinner on Wednesday, and supper on Saturday. We are bound to the twenty-four-hour cycle in respect to our metabolism, or the transmutation of matter from the outer world. This day cycle within us corresponds to the daily motion of the earth upon its axis. These things were closely perceived by ancient wisdom. People did not feel they were separate from the earth, for they knew that they conformed to its motions. They also knew the nature of what they conformed to. Those who have an understanding for the ancient works of art, though the examples still preserved today offer but little opportunity for studying these things, will be aware of a living sense on the part of the ancients. Of the connection of man, the microcosm, with the macrocosm. This is clear from the position certain figures take up in their pictures and the position that certain others are beginning to assume, etc., which continually reflect cosmic movements. But we shall find something of even greater significance if we examine something else. Almost all the peoples of this earth make a clear distinction between the week and the day. On the one hand stands the cycle of the transmutation of substances, or metabolism, which expresses itself in the taking of meals at regular intervals. But human beings have never reckoned according to this cycle alone, adding to the day cycle a week cycle. Human beings first distinguished the rising and setting of the sun, which corresponds to a day, then they repeated it cyclically in Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, a cycle seven times that of the other, returning once again to Sunday. We experience this in the contrast between day and week. But man wished to express a great deal more by this contrast. He wished first to show the connection of the daily cycle with the motion of the sun. Thus there is a cycle seven times as great as the daily rhythm, which, whilst returning again to the sun, includes all the planets, sun, moon, Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. This is the weekly cycle. This was intended to signify that having one cycle corresponding to a day and one seven times greater that included the planets, not only does the earth revolve upon its axis or the sun go round, but the whole system is also in movement. This movement can be seen in various other examples. If you take the cycle of the year, then you have in the year, as you know, 52 weeks, so that seven weeks is, numerically, roughly a seventh part of the year. This means taking the period from the beginning to the end of the year in terms of its weeks, that we must imagine the weekly cycle taking place at a different speed from what occurs through the daily cycle. And where are we to look for the origin of the feeling which impels us to reckon now with the day cycle and now with the week cycle. It arises from the sensation within us of the contrast between human head development and that of the rest of the organism. We see the human head organization represented by a process to which I have already drawn your attention, the formation 
within about a year's cycle of the first teeth. If you consider the first and second dentition, you will see that the second takes place after a cycle that is seven times as long as the cycle of the first dentition. We may say that the one-year cycle of the first dentition relates to the developmental cycle, active, until the second dentition, in the same way as the day relates to the week. The ancients felt this to be true, because they rightly understood another thing. They understood that the first dentition was primarily the result of heredity. You only need look at the embryo to realize that its development proceeds out of the head organization, and the remainder of the organism is added later. You will then understand that the ancients were quite correct when they saw a connection of the formation of the first teeth with the head and of the second teeth with the whole human organism. And today we must arrive at the same result if we consider these phenomena objectively. The first teeth are connected with the forces of the human head, the second with the forces that work from the rest of the organism and penetrate into the head. Through looking at the matter in this way, we have arrived at an important difference between the head and the rest of the human body. The difference is one which can in the first place be considered as connected with time, for that which takes place in the human head has a seven times greater rapidity than that which takes place in the rest of the human organism. Let us translate this into rational language. Let us say that today you have eaten your usual number of meals in the proper sequence. Your organism demands a repetition of them tomorrow. Not so the head. This acts according to another measure of time. It must wait seven days before the food taken into the rest of the organism has proceeded far enough to enable the head to assimilate it. Supposing this to be Sunday, your head would have to wait until next Sunday before it would be in a position to benefit from the fruit of today's Sunday dinner. In the head organization, a repetition takes place after a period of seven days of what has been accomplished seven days before in the organism. All this the ancients knew intuitively and expressed by saying a week is necessary to transmute what is physical and bodily into soul and spirit. You will now see that the metamorphosis occurring between death and rebirth also brings about a repetition in simple time in the succeeding incarnation of what requires a seven times longer period to be accomplished. We are thus concerned with the metamorphosis which is spatial through the fact that our remaining organism, our body, is not merely transformed but turned inside out and is at the same time temporal in that our head organization works seven times more quickly. It will be clear to you now that this human organization is not after all quite so simple as our modern comfort-loving science would like to believe. We must make up our mind to regard man's organization as much more complicated. For if we do not understand this rightly, 
we are also prevented from realizing the cosmic movements in which we take part. The descriptions of the universe circulated in modern times are mere abstractions, for they do not rest on the knowledge of man. The new perspective needed, above all by astronomy, is one requiring the re-inclusion of man in the scheme of things, when cosmic movements are being studied. Such studies will then naturally be somewhat more difficult. Goethe had an intuus of the skull from the vertebrae, when, in a Jewish burial ground in Venice, he found a sheep's skull, which had fallen apart into its various small sections. These enabled him to study the transformation of the vertebrae, and he then pursued his discovery in detail. Modern science has also touched upon this line of research. You will find some interesting observations relating to the matter and some hypotheses derived from it, Karl Gegenbauer. But in reality, Gegenbauer created obstacles to Goethean intuitional research, for he failed to find sufficient reason to declare himself in favor of the parallel between the vertebrae and the single sections of the skull. Why did he fail to do so? Because, so long as people think only of a metamorphosis, and disregard the inside-out inversion, proximate idea of the similarity of the two kinds of bones. For in reality the bones of the skull result from those forces which act upon man between death and rebirth, and they are therefore bound to be essentially different in appearance from merely transformed bone. They are turned inside out. It is this reversal which is the important point. Imagine upper or head realm. All influences or impressions proceed inward from without. Here below would be the rest of the human body. Here everything works from within outward, but so as to remain within the organism. Let me put it in another way. With his head man stands in relation to his outer environment while with his lower organism he is related to the processes taking place within himself. Mystic says, look within to find the reality of the outer world. But this is merely abstract thought. The reality of the outer world is not found through inner contemplation of all that acts upon us from outside. We must go deeper and consider the two different realms within us and allow the world to take form in quite a different part of our being. That is why abstract mysticism yields so it is necessary to think, here too, of an inner process, not merely of an abstract transformation of what we find outside us. I do not expect any of you to allow your dinner to stand before you untouched and appease your hunger merely through its attractive appearance. Life could not be sustained in this way. No, we must induce that process which runs its course in the twenty-four-hour cycle, and which, including the upper or head organization, only finishes its course after seven days. But that which is assimilated spiritually, for it has really to be assimilated and not merely contemplated, also requires for this process a period seven times as long. 
Therefore, it becomes necessary, first, intellectually, to assimilate all we absorb. But to see it reborn again within us, only then has it developed into what it was intended to be. That is why, after the founding of the Anthroposophical Society in 1901, we had to wait patiently, seven years, and then even fourteen years, for the result. Footnote, the formal institution of the Anthroposophical Society took place in February 1913. End of footnote, end of lecture seven.